This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles tonight to John chapter 18. John 18, we'll be looking tonight at verses 28 through 40. Actually, we are looking through verse 38. We're not going through verse 40. We're only going through verse 38 tonight. So John 18, verses Sorry, 28 through 38. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about me, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive it, that we would see the truth in your word, that we would see what your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, endured and suffered for our sake, though he was innocent. Though there was no grounds for a charge against him, he willingly endured the suffering and the death of the cross so that we, his people, might live. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, recently, the genre of true crime has been on the rise. You can see it in a lot of TV shows and podcasts and documentaries where New investigators open up old legal cases and often find surprising results. 
Sometimes the stories they tell are important and the stories are told in such a way that they prove beneficial. They help to solve old cases that where the criminals have evaded justice for many years. Other times they help to acquit those who are wrongfully convicted because even at their best, the best justice systems can occasionally fail. In fact, the whole genre basically depends on the justice system failing because if the justice system did not fail, they would have nothing to talk about. The right criminals would always be caught and punished for the right crimes. But in our fallen and sinful world, this is sometimes not the case. Justice can be perverted. Judges and even juries can be passive or corrupt. They can be led astray by false witnesses and false evidence. Lots of things can and do go wrong in the pursuit of justice. Well, this trial of Jesus is one of the greatest feats of injustice that the world has ever seen. And last week we saw in the first part of Jesus' trials, the Jewish portion, where Jesus appeared before Ananias, the former but highly regarded high priest of Israel, and his son-in-law, the current high priest, Caiaphas. Now John in his gospel doesn't go into great detail as to the content of these trials. All that he really covers is the corruption of the process, revealing that the rulers of the Jews had no substantial evidence or witnesses or a case against Jesus. They're only trying to trap him into bearing witness against himself, and they're lashing out against him when he won't. Jesus was never going to get a fair trial before the rulers of the Jews. They had been out to get him for years. They hated Jesus for many reasons. They hated him because he would not accept and uphold their errant and legalistic interpretations of the law. They hated him because he amassed a large following. He threatened their power and influence. He was taking followers away from their ways and traditions. They hated him because he had power and could do signs and wonders that they could not. They wanted him gone. They wanted him dead. They had for a long time, and now they see and seize their opportunity. They even got cooperation from one of Jesus' inner circle, Judas Iscariot, who helped deliver Jesus into their hands. Everything is going according to their wicked and vile plan, but in this process, true justice has been completely corrupted and broken down. They're closer than ever to getting rid of Jesus for good. But there is one hitch in the plan. They want Jesus put to death, the leaders of the Jews do, but they do not have the authority on their own to do it. Only the occupying Roman government can put a man to death. So another round of trials is needed, this time before the Roman officials. And that is what we will begin to see tonight, particularly what John records of Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. So we will look at this first portion of this trial tonight in four points. First, we see doubt in verse 28 through the first part of verse 31. 
Pilate is reluctant to take up this case from the Jews. He is not particularly interested in getting involved. Then second, we see desire in verses 30, the second part of verse 31 and verse 32. The Jews make clear their desires and intentions for Jesus, and they try to drub up a false charge of sedition. And then third, we see dominion in verses 33 through 37. Jesus is king, and he will say so, but he describes what kind of king he is and what kind of kingdom he has. And then fourth and finally, we see disinterest in verse 38. After all this, Pilate doesn't really want to do anything. He simply wants to abdicate his duties and wash his hands of this matter. So again, doubt, desire, dominion, and disinterest, those are our points for this evening. So first we see doubt in verse 28 through the first part of verse 31. We see in verse 28 where we are at this location and where we are in the timeline. After the trials at the high priest's complex, Jesus is led to the praetorium. This would be the seat of the regional Roman government in Jerusalem and Judea. Particularly, it would be the seat of Pontius Pilate, the governor. We also see by this point that it is early morning. Specifically, it would be Friday morning, the Friday of the Passover. Now, the Jews and the Romans were not friends. They historically did not share much common interest and cooperation. To the Jews, the Romans were a foreign and illegitimate occupying force. They had conquered their land and taken it from them, and thus they were in violation of God's will that the Jews ought to be governed by a Davidic king and worship God freely. The Romans, as they did with all of their colonies, they taxed Judea heavily. They had taken away many of the Jews' own legal authority and powers. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So the Jews hated the Romans, they resented the Romans, they would have wanted them out of their land. But the hard feelings were mutual. The Romans viewed the Jews as religious zealots, as uncooperative. There were frequent conflicts and attempts at uprisings by the Jews against Roman rule. Things would get so bad in that regard that eventually in 70 AD, decades after Jesus, a Jewish rebellion will be put down violently and harshly, so much so that it leads to the final destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, from which Judaism has never recovered. While the Romans uniquely showed the Jews religious freedom and tolerance, unlike other religions of the peoples that they captured and subjugated, the Jews, particularly on matters of religion, continued to be difficult and resistant. Remember from last week that the Romans at one point deposed Ananias as high priest. He was causing enough trouble for the Romans that they wanted him out of office and were able to get him out of office. If the Romans were ever good at anything, it was wielding power and maintaining order even in a large and sprawling empire. We are introduced at this point in the narrative to Pontius Pilate. He had been the Roman governor for about four years by the time Jesus was brought to him. 
He, like his predecessors, did not much care for the Jews that he was tasked to govern. And during his reign, there had been more resistance and uprisings. Pilate had brutally and violently put down an uprising that was described in Luke chapter 13, where he not only put the rebels to death, but mingled their blood with sacrifices. He committed sacrilege against the Jewish religion in the interest of quelling this rebellion. So Pilate had no problem with brutality, and he was no respecter of the religion of Yahweh. This is the dynamic that is in play that early morning as the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate to advance the cause of putting him to death. Now further complicating this proceeding, the Jews themselves are unwilling to enter the praetorium because they believe that doing so would make them unclean. And if they were made unclean, they would not be able to keep the Passover feast that night, which was their most important feast of the year. So that would not enkindle a spirit of cooperation with Pilate. But it also reveals their great hypocrisy. Going into a Roman house, that makes one unclean, but murdering a man, as they intended to do with Jesus... That's no big deal. They can still eat the Passover after that. As Calvin writes, in short, they, that is the leaders of the Jews, they observe the shadow of the Passover with a false and pretended reverence. And yet not only do they violate the true Passover by sacrilegious hands, but endeavor as far as lies in their power to bury it in eternal oblivion. Now, never mind the fact that these leaders of the Jews show up in the middle of the night, in the early morning hours. Remember from last week that such a night trial would have been viewed as illegitimate and illegal. And even just as a practical matter, the Jews are unwilling to even wait until the morning to move forward with their murderous plot. So they bring Jesus to Pilate, and Pilate asks in verse 29 a logical question. What accusation do you bring against this man? Essentially, why are you here? Why are you bringing Jesus to me? Now Pilate, at this point, he likely either didn't know or didn't care about Jesus and what he had been doing. So if the Jews were so insistent on a trial for him, it would be helpful to him to know what it was for. But this also shows a certain distrust that Pilate has for them. It was not implausible that the Jewish leaders would do this to him all the time, bringing him alleged crimes and criminals that were very important to them, but of no particular interest to him. He would have seen these leaders as rabble-rousers and troublemakers, and they were likely a recurring problem for him. Now what is fascinating is that no such explanation, no answer to Pilate's question seems to be offered, at least at first. Only something of personal affront. They reply, if he, that is Jesus, were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Again, they don't actually specify a charge here. It seems eventually the charge they settle on is sedition or treason, 
that Jesus makes himself a rival king to Caesar. But for now, all they have when Pilate first asks is, he's bad, he's an evildoer. There is such hatred, such derangement that they have towards Jesus, but they can't even put it into words. But Pilate sees through it. He realizes this is probably an illegitimate proceeding that he should have no part of. So he opens verse 31 by telling the Jews to take Jesus and judge him according to their law. This is a religious dispute between Jews. They should handle it themselves. Who is Pilate, the Roman governor, who doesn't even like or care about the Jews to get involved in this? But there is a problem. And this brings us to our next point. After Pilate's doubt, we come to a desire in the end of verse 31 and verse 32. The problem is what the Jews want to do to Jesus. They don't merely want to levy some criminal conviction or sanction against him. They want to put him to death. And they want a Roman execution to be the means by which this occurs. In part, this is likely to add a veneer of legitimacy to what is quite obviously an illegitimate legal proceeding. Jesus had done nothing worthy of death. But for the sake of public perception, it needed to look like Jesus deserved to die for some high crime. Now, another layer to this was authority. As John records, the Jews saying they did not have authority on their own to put a criminal to death. Once the Romans occupied Judea, they had a monopoly on force. The power to put people to death was exclusively vested in their governors and their government. In order for Jesus to be executed, the Romans had to do it. Of course, if the Romans were going to carry out capital punishment, Jesus would have to be found worthy of a crime, found guilty of a crime worthy of such a punishment. Now, the Roman death also would have been significant, as John points out in verse 32, because Romans executed by crucifixion. And Jesus had spoken about the death he was going to die, one of lifting up. He spoke about this in John 3 and then again in John 12. Crucifixion would also evoke the cursed death of Deuteronomy 21, the death of one hanged on a tree. So Jesus would be dying as one accursed, but he would be dying to bear the curse of sin for his people. So at the Jews' insistence that Jesus had committed some capital offense, they're not yet sure which one, but Pilate seems to have no choice now but to hear Jesus' case. This brings us to our third point. After doubt and desire, we come to dominion in verses 33 through 37. I mentioned before the legal charge that the Jews seem to settle on is sedition, that Jesus was making himself a rival king to Caesar. Now this was a bit ironic, given that these leaders of the Jews were actually quite seditious in their own rights. They hated Caesar and the Romans, and they opposed him at every turn. Jesus, it seems, had never done that. And it was not for lack of opportunity. In Matthew 22, Jesus had been asked if it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. 
If Jesus thought that Caesar's rule was illegitimate, that would have been a great opportunity to say so. But he didn't. He told his followers to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And the two are not necessarily in contradiction. So if there was a traitor, if there was a fomenter of insurrection, it wasn't Jesus. But that was the charge of which the Jews wanted to convict him. And it is because of this charge of sedition that the line of questioning from Pilate focuses on Jesus' kingship. Because it might... <clears throat> because their whole case rested on Jesus' kingship being a rival kingship claim to Caesar's. So in verse 33, Pilate begins to ask questions. He asks, very plainly, are you the king of the Jews? Now Jesus' response might at first seem a bit evasive. He says, are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? But what Jesus is doing is he is once again exposing the illegitimacy of this proceeding. Jesus had not set himself up to be the king of the Jews in any way that would have resulted in this trial. Wherever Jesus had the opportunity to resist and oppose Roman authority, he didn't. Remember even that there has been a couple of times in John where Jesus had opportunities to be made a king first in Galilee and then second in Jerusalem. Both times, he didn't want it. He didn't take it. He escaped so that they could not make him king. Now, if Jesus had done that, it would have been sedition. It would have been treason. It would have been grounds for the Romans to kill him. Of course, Jesus was ultimately the king of the Jews. He was the king of kings. He was of the line of David. He could have been their king. Another cruel irony in all of this is that the leaders of the Jews, by trying to convict Jesus of sedition, shows where their priorities really lied. They would rather side with the Romans. They would rather side with Caesar. They would rather side with the city of man and the system of the world than the true king that God had given them. But at any rate, Jesus asks this question of Pilate to point out that they have no case. They have no evidence. Pilate, for his part, seems to understand this when he responds, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? In other words, Pilate doesn't know or understand why Jesus was there. This was a flimsy case at best. But Jesus answers him, my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus is acknowledging that he is a king, but he is qualifying his kingship in such a way that it does not directly rival the kingship of Caesar or any other worldly king. Now, this is not an absolute. There do come times where Jesus' kingship does and must rival worldly kings. For instance, when the emperor cult in Rome gained traction and Caesar demanded not only subjection but worship, Christians could not go along, and they suffered much. Many of them died for not going along. 
When rulers decree and demand evil that contradicts God's law, Christians have a higher loyalty to the king of kings that must take precedence. But insofar as Caesar governs lawfully, Christians are bound to Caesar. The kingdom of God does not eliminate or destroy the kingdom of the world, at least not in this age. Jesus provides evidence for his point that he has not set up an earthly kingdom to rival Caesar's. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. Now, this is an important point. If Jesus came to be an earthly king of an earthly kingdom, it would have, it would have had to be protected by violent resistance. Other than Peter's outburst in the garden, for which Jesus rebuked Peter and healed the man he attacked, there had been no violent resistance to keep Jesus from falling into the hands of his enemies. In an earthly kingdom, the worst thing that could happen would be the king being arrested and killed. That is basically the end of a kingdom. Yet this is happening according to God's will and plan. No soldiers and no army are rising up to save Jesus from this. This is either a very weak and poorly run kingdom, or it is not an earthly kingdom at all. And the latter is true. Jesus is no earthly king of an earthly kingdom. So Pilate tries to get at the issue more directly. He asks, are you a king then? The kingdom seems a little off from one might expect in a charge of sedition. So what about the king himself? Well, Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. Okay, Pilate might think to himself, now we're getting somewhere. But Jesus continues, For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Jesus is a king, but again, he is not interested in an earthly king to rival Rome. His kingdom is a kingdom of truth a kingdom of the word of God being proclaimed, which Jesus has done. Put succinctly, yes, Jesus is a king, but his kingship and kingdom are so far removed from the usual earthly categories of these things that they could not cause any offense to the Romans. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of salvation. For those who are of the truth, hear his voice and believe. It is a spiritual kingdom. Well, what does Pilate think of this answer? This brings us to our final point. After doubt and desire and dominion, we come to disinterest in verse 38. Now Jesus has, though Pilate did not realize it, communicated the most powerful and profound truths of his kingdom to him. That Jesus was sent by God to bear witness to the truth. As Jesus had said earlier in the Upper Room Discourse, salvation was to believe in the Father and the one who he sent, Jesus the Son. But Pilate does not care. He answers as many in our day answer, throwing up his hands and asking, 
what is truth? So many today want to disbelieve truth, deconstruct truth, even deny that truth exists at all. So the very truth himself can come and speak, and it won't matter. This is the power of unbelief and the condemnation of unbelief. The truth can be revealed in the most powerful and personal ways possible, and it won't matter. Pilate does not care. He has no interest in the truth that Jesus speaks to him. Of course, he also does not care that much about helping the Jews prosecute their claim against Jesus. He comes back out to them after he's thrown up his hands and said, what is truth? Remember, though, they're waiting outside because it's the Passover and they have to be clean. But he comes out to them and he tells them, I find no fault in him at all. Jesus has said and done nothing deserving of death and punishment. Of course, that doesn't mean that death and punishment won't come. We will see in the passages ahead how Pilate is weak and corrupt and cowardly, and though he does not believe a crime was committed, he will allow Jesus to suffer and die as a criminal anyway. The very truth has manifested himself to Pilate, and all Pilate can do is shrug. All he wants the truth to do is go away and leave him alone so he can go back to sleep. What about you tonight? The very truth of Jesus Christ is proclaimed again in your midst. All these things Jesus underwent, his arrest, his trial, his eventual death, were to save his people from their sins. That purpose was even communicated to the very Roman governor who would hand down the sentence. That governor did not care. But perhaps the word of Christ is proclaimed to you. Maybe thus far you've heard it and you do not care. You're so preoccupied with the kingdom of this world and the things that it offers that you might miss the greater kingdom, the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of life and salvation offered in Christ. Friend, do not miss him. Trust in him. Repent of your sins. Believe in Christ and find life in him, eternal life in his kingdom, which is without end. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. As we see these things that your son Jesus Christ suffered, we are reminded of who he is that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the greatest of kings, and yet his king is not like any other. It is a kingdom not of power and of violence, but it is a kingdom of grace, a kingdom of truth. I pray that you would write this truth on our hearts and minds and that it would, the truth of this kingdom would go forward into the world, that we would be prepared always to give a reason for the hope we have. And I pray if there's any here tonight who do not belong to this kingdom, that you would bring them in and graft them in by the redemption won in Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.